Welcome to Super Aging Podcast. This podcast strives to promote healthy aging, amplify caregiver voices, and raise awareness about dementia. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Fatou Sise. Today, I am speaking with doctor, businesswoman, educator, and author, Dr. Cheryl Woodson. Dr. Woodson spent more than 30 years teaching and practicing geriatric medicine at the University of Chicago and Northwestern University Medical School. She founded the only subspecialty level community-based privately owned geriatric program in the nation that offers primary care services to empower all adults to age excellently. By focusing on heart health, preventing illness, managing weight and stress, and learning about the miracles of maturity. She helps family caregivers meet their senior needs without destroying their own health, finances, and relationships. Welcome, Dr. Woodson. It's truly a privilege and an honor to have you here. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Good morning. So we know that older age can have challenges both in terms of health and physical and mental well-being. As a clinician's point of view, what does superaging mean to you? I think that we have to look at aging as a blessing, first of all. I mean, aging by itself is not a problem. It's mm-hmm. illness that's the problem. That's right. And I think there are changes. I mean, aging is not optional. Mm-hmm. But I think it's about not only physically maximizing your physical health and what you can do, maybe adjusting things so that you continue to do what you enjoy doing, maybe at a different level or a different right. weight. Mm-hmm. But mentally, it's about resilience. It's about when something doesn't go the way you need it to go, you mm-hmm. go, what's plan B? Yeah. And it's that resilience, I think, that separates people who age excellently from people who do not. So adapting to their new, whatever comes on their way, right? Not just adopting, using it. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. One of my pastors, um, Dr. Frank Thomas, used to say that when a young person plays basketball, they drive to the hoop. When they're an older person, they develop a fadeaway jump shot. They still score. It's not passive. It's not accepting. It's grabbing this by the throat and kicking it down the street. You know, (laughs) it really is about being active and aging intentionally. Intentionally. I love that. At Super Aging, we are passionate about seeking the best of ourselves, our families, and our friends in older age. What inspires you to pursue the career in older adults? I knew three of my four grandparents very well into my 20s. Ah. And I was raised in a very large church in North Philadelphia where they really took care of us. They expected something of us and they helped us get to where we were going. But we had lots of people who were reliable. You know, we had people you could trust, people that you would go to if you had a problem. And so old people were positive images in my life. Right. When I was training, Mm -hmm. I got very tired of 20-something white male residents calling 80-year-old Black women by their first names. 
And that just made me crazy. Because yeah. everybody I knew was Miss So-and-so, Mr. So-and-so. Yeah. I mean, just with the respect, I just did not feel it. When I became a senior resident and I could stop that from happening on my service, I could not get other people to extend treatments to folks regardless of their age. They didn't know how to look at functional status. They just looked at the date the person came on the planet and decided we're not doing that. So I decided to do academic geriatrics and did my fellowship at UCLA so that I could train docs how to deal with older adults. That is so important. And as my first job out of fellowship was as a director of the fellowship program at the University of Chicago, and I realized the fellowship is too late. (laughs) You have to start in medical school. Right. Okay. Yeah, the training component is so huge. And what do you mention about respect coming from a different culture? We could not, like my kids and I would call people aunties and uncles Mm -hmm. and not call them by their first names. Um, just because that's how culturally, you know, something who's older than you, you don't just call them by their first names. I so will I'm never not, forget yeah. that Maya Angelou did. And hmm. this young girl in the audience stood up and said, Maya, something. And she said, wait, you have not lived long enough to call me Maya. <laughs> and I said, yes, that's how you do it. I love that. I love that. I think we need to train kids how to address older people. Not just kids, but professionals. A lot of professionals believe that if you call somebody by their first name, it creates intimacy. That may be true for children. And that may be true for people with advanced dementias who don't remember more than their first name. But for everybody else, you have to ask people how they want to be addressed. Now, HIPAA has made things difficult because people can't come out into a waiting room and call your name. Mm-hmm. So that a lot of times they use first names, but I think that's very off-putting and it starts the conversation and the relationship on a very bad foot. That That is true. I mentioned kids because I think depending on how you grow up, I think if kids learn that way, they grow up with it, whatever profession they go into, just like you did, you know, they would instill that in you know, embrace that and bring it to the profession as well. So, But I think it's trainable. I mean, when I had residents rotating through my private practice, they noticed that in the chart, it said what people wanted to be called. They were lawyer so-and-so, doctor so-and-so, pastor so-and-so, bishop so-and-so. It's in the chart what they want to be called. Called. True, true. Great. You recently started a talk series on rowing into retirement. And can you tell us a bit more about what do you hope to speak in this series? Yeah, in in Roaring Into Retirement, I'm trying to get people to realize that age is not a disease and that aging is not about what you can no longer do. It's about what you no longer have to do. (laughs) You know, that there's a freedom and power in aging. And what I found is that many people prepare for retirement financially. Mm-hmm. but they have no idea what they're going to do the day after that retirement party. They haven't decided how they're going to spend their time, what their new purpose is going to be. And more and more of us are defining our personhood by our job title. And when that's gone, it makes a lot of people just completely lose their mooring 
And it also makes people just bored. You're sitting there without anything to do. So I'm yeah. trying to get people to prepare for retirement other than just financially, but to look at it as the next 30 years of your life because people are living much longer. Yeah. You're not going to retire at 65 and die at 67. <laughs> no. True. True. So, yeah. and you're likely to be retired longer than you worked nowadays. Yes. Yes. So what are you going to do? What were your original dreams? How can you adapt that to whatever is in your environment now? And is this even the right environment? You can change things because you don't care what people think anymore. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You know, I read from somewhere now, I'm trying to think where I read this, but um, uh, the author was saying something about your first 50 years or first, yeah, first half of your life is about learning how to do things. Now, the next part of your life is you know what to do. So it's about- I disagree. I disagree completely. Okay. I think of life in 30-year blocks. Okay. First 30 years, you have no idea what's going on and mm -hmm. you're open. Let's try this. Let's try that. What's going to happen? The second 30 years is where you think you're in control. That's uh -huh. when you're in that corner office. That's when you've made that executive decision. You're finished your training. The third 30 years comes and stuff starts happening that's not in your control. You can't see the way you used to see. Mm -hmm. um, there may be pressures on the job. There may be people who want to hire younger folks that they have to pay less than you mm -hmm. and expect you to train them on your way out. I mean, there are lots of things that happen because we live in an ageist culture. But we have something in that third 30 years that we didn't have in the first 30 years. And what we have to do is be comfortable reaching back for that sense of wonder. What's going to happen? What can I do now? Because right. now we have wisdom and we have resilience and we have a LinkedIn contact list. <laughs> so there's nothing you can't do. So I don't think the learning ever stops. The learning does yeah. not have to stop. That's a, that's a lifelong thing. Yes, no, I, totally, I totally agree with that. Learning is a, a lifelong process. And being comfortable with change and because the only thing that is stable is change. Change, yeah. If you okay. worship sameness, if you need it to be the way it always was, you're mm -hmm. doomed because it's not going to be. Yeah, true. You have seen and experienced elder care from both as a fellowship-trained academic geriatrician who um, decided to work in community and as a daughter who also navigated your own mother's 10-year journey with Alzheimer's disease. What did each of these experiences brought to the way that you provide and advocate for care of the patient, your patients and community members? Of course, the academic piece gave me the science. Okay. And gave me the anatomy and the pathology and the medications and all the things that come with being a healthcare professional, being mm -hmm. a physician. But the daughter part taught me to be practical. And mm -hmm. my first book was called To Survive Caregiving. Right. A Daughter's Experience of Doctor's Advice. And what I found is that professionals write amazing books that give you lots of information, but you wonder what planet is that going to work because it's not practical. Mm. And families can tell beautiful stories, but they don't have the background to tell you how to deal with it. Mm. You know? 
And so the doctor-daughter thing really helped me bring both perspectives to give better support for right. families from both ends. That's, that's wonderful. One of your passion is ensuring that caregivers can provide the best care and advocacy possible for their loved ones. So what, without risking their own lives, so what are the role of family caregivers in the process of aging? Oh my God, family caregivers are doing almost 80% of the care. Families are doing this. Yes. And the system is set up to expect that families are gonna do this, which is very difficult because now people are working, they're taking care of kids, taking care of two or three seniors. And I had a 58 year old caregiver in my practice drop dead and leave two 80 year old people here because she was so busy taking care of them that she forgot to take care of herself. She didn't know her diabetes was out of control. You know, it was just really terrible. So what I have is the five keys to caregiver survival. There are five steps, five Mm -hmm. perspectives that you need to have covered that will allow you to get excellent elder care without destroying yourself. And this is all outlined in the second edition of To Survive Caregiving, which will come out by the fall. Okay, well, we look forward to hearing that and getting that book. How can a clinician help to ensure that their patients has the support of caregiver in their lives that would help prepare family members to take care of the caregiving role? I think there are, that's a two-part answer Mm -hmm. because when people came to my practice, I had them fill out a form that said everybody I was allowed to talk to. Because according to HIPAA, I can't talk to anybody. I can't give anybody information without a signature. So I did that for people over 18. You know, any adult in my practice, I asked them who they wanted me to share their medical information with. Right. That also gives me an idea of who's available to support that person. Mm. And particularly when I was doing comprehensive geriatric assessment of Mm -hmm. really frail older adults who were at risk for nursing home placement, I always asked that the caregiver be there, at least on the first visit. And just making sure that families also know that even though HIPAA says, I can't talk to you, it doesn't say you can't talk to me. Right. So if somebody's falling all the time, I need somebody to tell me she drinks a six pack of beer every night. <laughs> you know, even <laughs> if- Helping families understand what they can and can't do. And just knowing that it's within their own um, yes. will to be able to give you that permission to talk to you. Yes, that's one. But even if you don't have permission, if you're not one of the people that the doctor is allowed to talk to, but you have information that you think is critical, mm-hmm. you can give that information to the office. You just can't expect a response. Ah. And so that's really important. Yeah. But one of the things I think is most stressful for caregivers is that they have no idea what they're doing. They don't know if what the care they're giving is the right care. And so, again, part of the five keys is to find out what's going on. Yeah. You don't want to give more care than's necessary and impose on somebody who's not that sick, but you also don't want to give less care than necessary and commit elder abuse and neglect. So the level of care prescription is another concept that I've developed that points you right at the table. It says exactly what this person needs. And what kind of person needs to help them? 
is it their daughter or is it a skilled nurse? Right. And these are concepts that I outline in the book that if caregivers go to their doc yeah. with those 10 questions mm-hmm. that are in the level of care prescription, even right. if the doc doesn't know the term level of care prescription, yeah. they will get the information that they need. That's wonderful. We definitely have to have you back to, to you. talk about the book when it's out. Thank you. Uh, because that would be important for our listeners to benefit from. What are the best ways for a patient to prepare for a doctor's appointment to maximize the time? I know that's in your book. But yes. Just, um, just, and just, I have to give I have to give honor and a shout out to Bernadette Ryan. Okay. Bernie Ryan was the primary caregiver of two of my older patients. And she was from a family of, I think, seven children. Okay. Two of whom were not even in the country. And so when people were visiting, they would often provide transportation for the visits because Bernie was working. But Bernie put together a book and that book went with the seniors. Whoever had the seniors had the book and it had all of her questions, all of their information, And a place in the back where I could write answers or print out a note to give back to her. You have to have the medical information organized, whether you carry it on your phone Mm -hmm. (laughs) or whether you actually have a book. Because when you're in the office, Mm -hmm. time is a premium. It is. Everybody's moving like that. And you're scared. And so you may forget things. So this is a way to have everything written down. And Bernie would also often, when she was coming to my office, uh-huh. have a conference call with her siblings to get everybody's questions. Oh, yeah. That's wonderful. That's, That's but Bernie, Bernie taught me that. Bernie Ryan taught me that. And I have a description of how to put that together. And you can put it together on your phone. That's wonderful. That's such a good resource. So we'll definitely have you come back, like I said. But even if you don't do that, write down what questions you have. Yeah, I think, yeah, you're right. That's important because that just organizes your thought process in the median and in your visit with the doctors and just maximize the time there. The other thing that you can do is talk to your practice about how they like to get information. More and more docs are dealing with email and um, medical records like my chart, where yes. you can ask questions and leave messages. Mm-hmm. Just so long as what you are concerned about is written down somewhere before you get there. That's true. What kind of policies would you like to see to support older adults, but also their caregivers? Many families have had people retire early to do Mm -hmm. elder care. And unfortunately, many have retired before they're vested in their pensions, before they have enough money to support their own senior years. Mm -hmm. And what we're seeing now is that the age of caregivers is dropping. I mean, even millennials are doing care. People come back to live at home and find out that mom and dad aren't doing as well as they thought. Mm -hmm. So people can't retire in their 40s. So I would like to see companies put elder care benefits into their HR policies. Okay. You know, where they are helping people find care, where they are doing stress management. Mm. I mean, affiliating with case management companies, I'm not asking them to do it themselves, but they need to make it available and pay for it because it makes sense. If they have to fire somebody because they messed up, It costs money to recruit and train and get that person up to speed. 
That is true. If the person doesn't happen to get terminated, they still show up late, leave early, and have what the companies call presenteeism, while your body is there, but your mind is back in your mind. Yes. So I think companies will benefit by helping working caregivers. I think that's a big thing that I would like to see happen. Okay. Well, that's great. But that's in the private sector. Mm -hmm. So do you think that the legislatures also can contribute to helping this situation? Oh, yes. Tax benefits that don't require you to have a person be your dependent financially. Right. Because most of that person's income is coming from Social Security, not from you. That doesn't mean that you don't have resources that you're spending. I mean, the average caregiver spends almost $6,000 a year yeah. of their own money. money. So if mom has a pension and you're not creating 51% of her upkeep income-wise, mm-hmm. you can't count her as a dependent. That doesn't mean you're not buying groceries, hiring You know, it really is important for us to think about how to fund caregivers. Right. And all kinds of caregivers. I mean, people want to live at home. Many of them need people to come in. And there was a time, and I think it was maybe 20 years ago now, the omnibus legislation said that if you qualify for public aid, Mm -hmm. you did not have to use that money in a nursing home. You could use it to pay for adult daycare, for home care. And that only happened in a couple of states in the union. (laughs) Oh, really? It would make more sense. It would make more sense if all states said, rather than spending the amount of money they spend on nursing homes all the time, Mm -hmm. to take that money and buy home health aids and visiting nurses and, you know, something to help people stay at home. Yeah. And I think if we learn anything from this COVID pandemic is home is essential for older adults. If that's what they choose. I mean, I think we ought to ask what people want. One of the things about seniors is that if you say older adults are, if you don't say different, anything else you say is a lie. Because older adults are more different from their peers than any other age group. People get potty trained about the same time. They go to kindergarten about the same time. They develop acne about the same time. (laughs) But people don't retire at the same time. They don't become widowed at the same time. They don't die or become infirm. So I think it really is about finding out what the older adult wants and then trying to make that happen. Right. Yeah. As a geriatrician, um, you probably know this because from my practice as a senior care person, most people that I would say I have not met people who are excited about leaving their home to move to, say, a facility. So, yes, it is about what they want. But then from what I see is most of them wanted to be at home. So I think that's because of the generation of people who are now in that age group. You know, Mm -hmm. they grew up after the war, during Second World War and right after when home ownership was the thing you you, that showed you arrived that you were an adult and home ownership was the primary part of people's wealth. That's not necessarily true anymore. And particularly millennials and people younger than them, they move around like you wouldn't believe. You know, you stay in a job three years, not 30 years. Yeah. And for me, I mean, I'm 65 years old, but I own the house. The house doesn't own me. If I decide I need to leave, 
by. You know, so it really depends on how the senior feels. And one of the problems with wanting to stay at home is whether or not you have the resources to keep that home from falling down around you. Mm-hmm. And that's another place where public funds can come in to help people maintain homes. But it's also a place where you have to be very careful if you're going to do a reverse mortgage. Uh-huh. Because with the life expectancy that people have, many mm-hmm. of us are going to outlive the equity in our homes. Right. And they won't put you out of your house, but they won't put a roof on it either. So you really have to think about everything that goes into yeah. staying in your home. That's absolutely true. Are you going to have to hire people to shovel snow and cut grass? Mm. you know, on your limited income. And this is another place where I think communities can help because the church I was in several years ago had the youth team put together a business where they went around and cut grass, did grocery shopping, washed clothes, did little cooking, you know, for seniors who were at home. And churches can do that. Your youth group can do that. That is so incredible. Yeah, that's and that, that intergenerational piece is important because kids oh. get wisdom and older adults get other things, you know. That so. is very true. Very true. If you would tell a caregiver one message, what would it be? Understand that you are the quarterback, not the line staff. You have mm-hmm. to make sure stuff happens, but you do not have to do it yourself. And the fifth of the five keys to caregiver survival is to put your mask on first, which is what airline flight attendants tell you to do in case of an emergency. You can't help anybody if you haven't taken care of yourself. And for those of us who have a spiritual bent, remember, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. If you don't love yourself, you don't know how to love anybody. (laughs) That is so true. And then talking about self-care, what do you do for self-care, Dr. Woodson? For me, I write. Writing is just what makes me happy. Writing, I like giving professional speaking and talking and teaching about geriatrics. I have a voice lesson at 4.30 today. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever builds your spirit. Go ahead and do it. I mean, if you want to go back to school, go. Yeah. All the things that kept you from enjoying that when you were 25 don't exist anymore. You don't care what sorority you pledge now. (laughs) Just go to school. You know, why not start that business? Why not learn to roller skate or step or whatever you want to do? And aging to me is about freedom. Yeah. And writing really works for me. Okay. That's wonderful. It is clear from your work and that knowledge is power when it comes to aging and caregiving. So my question to you and for our listeners who perhaps sort of feeling the incredible changes that happened with COVID, what message would you have for them? Do not isolate. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, particularly we're not out doing things and interacting with people the way we're used to, we can feel that only we are going through whatever horrible thing we're going through, when actually lots of people are. Mm -hmm. And we can build our strength together by sharing our situation, not doing pity parties, but it may be that somebody who's a little bit farther along a road that you're traveling may have a point for you. Yeah. And you, even as a new person, 
might be coming in with a perspective that somebody who's been in the trenches doing it all the time hasn't thought about. We can really support each other, but do not isolate. That's a there are support message, uh, a one that's needed to be heard, especially during this pandemic. So thank you for sharing that. Um, in addition to your professional accolade, you have, as an author, you have this alter, you've wrote this fiction, right? You, yes. do, you do fictions. Um, what inspire you to write in? Um, fiction, writing holds your pain. Things that you can't say to your boss, things that you would rather not say to your children, even though you mean it, <laughs> you, know, you can put in paper and sit it in a drawer and come back a couple months later and see how much you progressed. Okay. And I did that with my story, with my girlfriend's stories, with other stories that I've heard. Mm -hmm. um, there was a woman in my practice who was an extremely competent accomplished woman, raised a lot of kids. She had put herself through school. She had a successful career and she was divorced. And in Bible study, some gentleman asked her to go to coffee. And she said, I'm not going out with him. And I said, he can't get you pregnant and keep you from graduating from high school. She's like 68 years old. And I started laughing. She burst into <laughs> tears because that's what happened to her. Oh, and as I realized that, I said, your husband couldn't run that on you today. That little girl who let that happen, you've just grown beyond that. Yes. And I started realizing that inside every accomplished woman is a little girl. Yes. Sits on your shoulder. And just when you're about to do something awesome, she says, who do you think you are? Mm. And that little girl is broken. And in my book, Dear Lauren Love Mom, Mm -hmm. 31 days of affirmations for my daughter, for myself and for you. Mm -hmm. There is an affirmation that says she can ride, but she can't drive. Huh. That little girl is in there, but she does not have to be running the show, keeping you from doing what you want to do. Okay. She learned to do that to protect you from things that hurt you as a child. Right. But mm -hmm. you are grown now. You have grown into the woman that would have protected that little girl. Right. So you can just do what you need to do now. There's no fear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Your book, your first book you published, To Survive Caregiving, yes. a, a daughter's experience, a doctor's advice on finding hope and help and health. What would readers from that book, what would they learn from the book? What they'll learn from that one and from the new edition that's coming out this fall, which is completely updated, completely rewritten, is what is it that you are dealing with? Why mm -hmm. is it so much different? Because one of the problems caregivers have is that older folks say, well, we never put anybody in a nursing home. We took care of everybody ourselves. And they feel guilty. But this generation of caregivers is doing what no previous generation of American caregivers has ever had to do. We didn't have as many older adults as we have now. They weren't as old as they mm -hmm. are now. And they weren't as sick for as long a time because before, if you got sick, you got better or you died. Right. Now we have chronic illness. Mm. So teaching people why it's different so you can stop feeling guilty. Teaching you how to get it done so you mm. can stop feeling powerless. Right. And then teaching you how to take care of your senior's number one resource, which is you, 
so you don't feel so worthless. That's the plan. That is wonderful. So this book is for caregivers. Um, yes. But would other professionals benefit from this book? Oh, yes. My goal is that people who counsel caregivers will mm. get the book and use it as a resource, you know, recommend it to their clients, look up things in it that will help them communicate with clients better. There's a companion book coming with the new edition of To Survive Caregiving called The Doctor is In. And it's answering questions that people have asked me in the last 40 years, caregivers, social workers, nurses, care managers. And I realized I had answers after 30 years. It's like, oh yeah, I thought I'd do that. And things like, how do you decide whether mom moves in with you? How do you decide whether you move in with mom? I mean, I have this very medical mind. It's like, if you're trying to prevent heart disease, you look at blood pressure and, and cholesterol and all that other stuff. Yeah. That's the way I think about everything. If you have a problem, what are the things that are going to get in your way? So I talk about how to make the nursing home decision. Because mm -hmm. you are honoring the promise that you made is that you'd always give the best care. And at some point you doing it yourself does not meet that goal. So how do you decide when it's time to use that tool? Um, there's a chapter about what happens when mom gives all her money to Pookie and you don't have any money to buy her medications. How do you do that? And you've got two kids in college. I mean, these are real life things oh, yeah. that oh, yeah. people are dealing with that over 40 years, including my own 10 years of caregiving, I've been able to find answers for, or at least ways to think about. Right. That people can adapt to their own resources and situations. I really can't wait to read your book when it's out. It's um, coming. I mean, publishing takes longer than it takes. I hoped it would be out for Mother's Day. It's not going to, but it'll be out when it's right for it to be out. I'm hoping my next goal is to get it out in November by National Caregiver Month. But oh, yeah. caregivers don't know they have a month. Many caregivers don't know what month it is. They're working so hard. So, so whenever it comes out, I'm hoping that it will be helpful for people. All right. Wonderful. Wonderful. My final question to you, Dr. Woodson, what is next? I know you have all these books coming up. I've got so many books in the pipeline. Um, there's a book I would like to write. It will be an anthology of stories about grown women who have overcome adversity in their lives to mm -hmm. find joy. And it's called Wild Women Don't Sing the Blues. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, Alberta Hunter was this jazz singer in the 30s, and she has a song like that. She's one of my favorite artists. So that's important to me. But I've got lots of fiction that I'd like to get out. And it's all about grown women okay. who go from doormat to diva. You know, these are people who come into their power without turning into men. That is something that is really important to me, you know, that they are still Nana, you know, they still have relationships. They're, they're wives and mothers and sisters. And while they're handling their business, they have not forgotten who they are. Yeah. And that's just really important. To me. It is very important. Well, thank you. I'm also um, consulting with health systems about care transitions, you know, how to get people out of the hospital in a way that they get what they need so they don't have to go back. That is, that is so important. 
Yeah. Well, right now, they, you know, if you go back in 30 days, the health systems get a ding for that. And what I found is they don't want you back in 30 days. They want you back day 31. <laughs> so I, I think <laughs> we really have to. Back. The admission is still happening, even if it's not within the first 30 days. Exactly. And it might have been preventable. It might have been preventable. The other thing is that skilled nursing is not the answer to everything. You know, mm-hmm. somebody's in the hospital, well, let's send them the sniff. No. Because what happens is they go to skilled and then they go home and the reasons they were in the hospital in the first place never got taken care of. So then they go home and three days later, they're back in the hospital. So we really need to look at the entire care plan if we're going to try to take care of people. Yeah. Well, those are wonderful, wonderful wisdoms that you share with us today. Thank you so very much for your time. It's truly a privilege and an honor to have you. Well, thank you. Discussion with you. And I look forward to having you more when your books are out. I will be back. In the meantime, go to my website, which is drcherylwoodson.com, and you'll be able to find out when the books are coming out and when there are other events and publications. Wonderful. I'll add that to this um, so note so people have access Thank to you. that. And is there other places that people can find your books that are already- Oh, they're out? all on amazon.com, all of them. Absolutely, yeah. All okay. of them are on Amazon. Okay. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. I really appreciate this. Well, thank you for having me. You have a great afternoon. You do the same. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to Super Agent Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the program. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out by leaving us a comment or sending us a message via email at superagentpodcast at gmail.com or connect with us through social media. And if you haven't done so already, please feel free to subscribe to any of your favorite podcast listening site, Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to your podcast and leave us a review. Until next time, remember that self-care is self-love. Take good care.